Hello, and welcome to another episode of Stories from Sydney, History of the Harbour City. I'm Jed. And I'm Alistair. And every fortnight, one of us tells the other a story from the rich and varied history of Sydney and her surrounds. Last episode, I shared a story. Alistair, I trust you remember it well. I certainly do. It was the fascinating story of the six o'clock swill in many ways. Uh, It kind of moved through almost a century of time looking at different uh, liquor laws and their effects on society and architecture even in, uh, in Sydney and in New South Wales. That all sounds right up your alley. You must have loved it. Oh, mate, I I did. I've actually been thinking about it quite a lot in the fortnight (laughs) since. Good. And I presented you a clue uh, last fortnight about this episode, and I believe it was something along the lines of, I'm going to be telling a story that involves smuggling, just like my last to some extent, but this time it all ends up in an armless mystery. Have you had any more thoughts about this cunning pun? No armless gangsters have sprung to my mind uh, in the intervening period between recording these episodes. Uh, So I'm going to stick with what I first thought, which is a sort of uh, Darlinghurst-based early 20th century drug-running gangster-type tale. I like it, yeah. So that kind of razor gang stuff. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Definitely got one of them in the pipeline somewhere. Well, you probably do too. Uh, but that's, that's not quite what we're going to be doing here, but very similar era, just a couple of years after the Razor Gangs and similar kind of society. Uh, so before I begin that, though, I would like to uh, acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which we record our podcast, which in my case is the Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation. And in my case, it's the Radri people of the plains west of the Blue Mountains. And our story for today uh, kicks off at Coogee Beach, uh, which is just down the road from me, so also in Bidjigal uh, country. So let's crack into it. Let's go. So as I mentioned, Jed, uh, we're going to start our story at Coogee Beach. And since I was so impressed last season when you got me in the frame of mind of a, I believe I was a cattle ranch owner or something like that in the Hunter region, I thought we could start (laughs) with some scene setting. Nice. A bit of role play. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. So we're traveling back in time to a quiet autumn afternoon in 1935. It's crisp and cool. Let me just close my eyes and get in the mood. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You feeling it? So as we step off the tram and look out at the beach, a crisp breeze gently ruffling our hair, we see that the short-lived but extravagant Coogee Pleasure Pier has been pulled down the year before, another victim of the Great Depression. But it's a norm... Yeah, yeah, it was short-lived. But its enormous wooden foundations still stretch out into the middle of the bay, holding an enormous shark net which spans across the su- to the surf lifesaving club at the end of the beach, making the entire southern half of the beach a shark-safe swimming area. And in fact, yet as we gaze out, we can remember only too well when the pier and its adjoining shark net had been officially opened only six year- years previously in 1929 with great pomp and circumstance during Come to Coogee Week, which attracted <laughs> over 100,000 punters. The crowds completely unaware that the Wall Street crash was just around the corner and the Pleasure Pier was not to last. So as it turned out in these difficult times that have followed, the Pleasure Pier was perhaps a bit too pricey, uh, with admission costing threepence. Mm. Whereas entry to the shark net area was and continues to be only a third of that price at a single penny. And it's still very popular today. In 1935. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not, That's not where we to, are. <laughs> sorry. Yes. You you really have to be <laughs> eyes closed, feeling yeah, yeah, the wind yeah. in your hair. <laughs> There's no shark net there anymore. <laughs> we'll get to that. Uh, on particularly hot nights in summer of 1935, huge crowds flock to Coogee Beach for night surfing events with enormous floodlights illuminating the beach and water until 2 a.m. Potentially, there was nothing else to do after the bars had all closed at 6, as we found out last episode. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing, actually. It is um, odd to think that the beach was, you know, a rollicking good time until 2 a.m., but you couldn't have a beer after 6. Well, you could on the beach. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what was what kind of drinks were going on there, but uh, if you think that the beaches look crowded now... It is truly something else to see photos of these uh, night surfing events at Coogee. It resembles the Crush It Late, a rock concert more than, than a day at the beach. Uh, it's, there's definitely like no room for sitting or lying on the sand. Like everyone's standing up kind of shoulder to shoulder. And uh, apparently up to 30,000 people would attend. Uh, don't think any, many of them were even able to get to the water. There were that many people there on the really, really hot days. It sounds like the annual uh, Christmas Day pilgrimage to Coogee Beach where the backpackers have a party and the, uh, oh, yeah. the wowsers at the telly and the Herald have a field day the following day uh, talking about just how outrageous it is. I believe that it was at Bronte Beach this year. Oh, shaking things up Yeah, you, you probably haven't been reading the local newspapers. But yeah, it, exactly as you described it. Same situation. But with COVID as well. So there was even more reason for local fury. <laughs> At the irresponsible behavior of a... Uh, Heavens. Yeah. Um, anyhow, uh, there will be a photo on uh, our Instagram and Facebook of these night surfing events that happened in the 30s. Um, the shark net continued, as you uh, mentioned, not around today, but it continued until World War II when it was removed. Uh, partially, I believe, for military reasons, also lack of material for repairs and other preferences of what they were going to do with all of that metal, I guess. As an aside, quite tangentially related... Uh, when I was living in Monterey down on Botany Bay a couple of years ago, me and my housemate used to have arguments about how effective the shark net actually was or whether there was a need for a shark net. I was obviously of the opinion that Botany Bay was so polluted, a shark would be mad to even come in there and you'd be safe regardless. He didn't even feel comfortable in the shark net, but certainly not out of it. And then shortly after we moved out of the area, he sent me an article uh, to a story in the local paper about a shark that had got into the shark net and then couldn't get out. Oh, no. So it's the one place in the bay where you don't want to be. Yeah, which kind of uh, made, well, I think we both thought it proved us right. (laughs) It definitely proved you wrong that there would be no sharks in the whole bay. Well, not where I was swimming. There wasn't. They were in the shark net. Um, Yeah, yeah. I think, actually, interestingly, there are a lot more sharks uh, in this period of Sydney's history than there are now around the around the kind of harbour and beaches. And they think that that might have been because so, so much kind of uh, effluent from abattoirs and uh, butcheries and stuff like that was kind of as as a much more industrial harbour kind of shoreline. There was a lot more pollution in the in the water, but that actually attracted a lot of sharks. Okay. Moving back to our uh, imaginary... <laughs> yes, yes. I'm breeze through I'm the air. <laughs> completely in 1935, Coogee Beach. We're, we're back there. And uh, on this crisp and cool autumn day, uh, it's not the sand and the breakers that we've come to Coogee for, but rather a visit to the aquarium and swimming baths at the north end of the beach. 
famous for an elaborate plumbing system which pumps fresh ocean water into its pools every day, its mixed bathing pool is a popular spot in summer. But in the off-season, the enterprising owners use the pool to display live sharks that they hook just off the coast. Just chuck them in the swimming pool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're ahead of their time. And uh, on that note, I am not really capable of maintaining this tone any longer. So we've walked up to the to the aquarium and swimming baths, and that is the Kuji Palace today is uh, still a remnant of that original uh, kind of larger precinct, which was the aquarium and swimming baths. Um, so definitely that building still exists. Uh, Where was the pool, can I ask? I believe it was, and it's now, I think, some kind of uh, service departments or something like that, just the next part uh west but still facing south like the south yeah, across onto the, the beach. park yeah yeah what's okay. now yeah exactly what's now the park um a porto yeah yeah exactly so like kind of halfway between t- the um the palace and a porto i think that the fish whole and chip bl- shop yeah yeah around there the yeah. whole block i think because you know how that's quite a short block and then there's a lane behind it mm. that whole block i think was more or less the this kind of larger aquarium swimming baths right. precinct yeah when they were able to catch a, a big shark they would uh, put it in the swimming pool uh they kind of throw it food from the, the the diving board actually like kind of a couple of times a day to and charge visitors to come in and have a look at it and it was kind of an off-season way of making some money uh obviously animal rights activists uh, hadn't kind of been able to have their say at that point in history because the sharks did not live for very long sadly in these pools i mean it was quite a small pool uh and really not ideal for a shark uh so it was kind of it was pretty cruel practice and i think they only they only lived for a matter of weeks but on this on this day in 1935 that we were imagining ourselves in uh we've we've heard that there's a i think 11 foot a huge uh tiger shark that's being caught so we've gone to have a look we've paid our entry fee and uh, once we're in there and looking at the shark, it suddenly starts convulsing. And as it kind of writhes around in the water, it throws up and vomits the in- all of the insides of its stomach. And floating on top of the water, we see a number of things. Amongst An arm. Them, a human arm. Aha. Yeah. The plot thickens. <laughs> so... You might be thinking, ah, some poor innocents had their arm ripped off by a tiger shark, which has then been caught and displayed in the Coogee Aquarium. Mm, seems like an awful lot of coincidences to me. Yeah, but that exactly. That's not what's happened because uh, the coroner quickly determines that this arm has been uh, severed not by shark teeth, not by like, the ripping, grinding of the shit teeth, but it's been severed by a large, sharp implement. Uh, and this is therefore quickly uh, taken to be a case of murder that somehow a severed arm has then ended up uh, in this shark's stomach by some crazy coincidence. And then by an even further crazy coincidence, the shark has ended up on display in Coogee. Vomiting it up in front Vomiting. of a crowd of people. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Um, so at this point, uh, we've got one of, one of the great events in Sydney history, really wild circumstances. I feel like and it's this point in the story where... If we were a murder mystery podcast, we would have our intro tune. Yeah. Yeah. And it's at this point that I'm going to make all the apologies for the fact that this definitely isn't a murder mystery podcast. 
because I, I have I have newfound respect for them. They're quite difficult. You have to really like get the information out slowly and feed it in certain ways so that you get an interesting, you know, like many episode long story. And we're not going to be able to do that. We obviously have these shorter episodes which we're more interested in places and things that are going on in the greater history of sydney rather than the murder mystery but it is actually a very 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 interesting murder mystery so if you would like to avoid spoilers and you would like to learn about this murder mystery in a proper way kind of more like a serial podcast where you get to hear it bit by bit and kind of figure out who done it um, I would really, really recommend uh, getting your hands on a book called Shark Arm by Philip Roop and <laughs> Kevin Meager. They didn't call it that. They did. It's called Shark Arm, subtitle, A Shark, A Tattooed Arm, and Two Unsolved Murders. It's a very recent book. It's only come out in the last uh, couple of years. And there are there are a number. There's quite such a extravagant, well, such an amazing event that there are quite a few books that have been written about it. But this one in particular, I would really recommend. Um and it's very, very good. And it will give you all you could ever ask for if you're into the kind of murder mystery whodunit. Go off and read that. Come back and listen to this if you're still interested. Or if you're not going to read it, keep listening. I'm not going to read it. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, so for those still listening, the only other thing is I just want to give a quick warning that uh, towards the end of the episode, I'm probably going to have to skip over it quite quickly. But there is a somewhat graphic description of an attempted suicide. All right, let's crack into it. So, uh, Jed, as you you know, you saw how exciting it was when this arm came out. The tabloids, of course, absolutely loved it. Front page Field news. day, afternoon yeah. news. <laughs> yeah, straight hot off the press. And in fact, um, the the arm was the arm had a tattoo on it, which uh, was made it pretty easy to identify who who it had belonged to. And quite tragically, the the uh, wife of the man whose arm it was, uh, Jim, so Jim Smith's wife, uh, actually found out about it more or less through these tabloid newspapers, uh, which word quickly spread throughout Sydney. So we're going to quickly start our story with a bit of a background of Jim Smith. He's a he's a working class man. He's, Sounds uh, like it from his name. Yeah, he's uh, he's originally, I believe, from England. Also sounds like it from his name. Yes. <laughs> but he, he ran uh, the Working Man Snooker Bar, uh, I believe in Roselle in the 1920s. Hmm. Yeah. My old stomping ground. Yeah. Where was his... this snooker bar? I, I, I can't tell you. You'd have to look it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, you're going to have a lot of that. <laughs> um, his, uh, his fortunes fluctuated kind of wildly depending on whether there was a conservative or a labor government in power and how much clamping down was happening on illegal off-course race betting and also on uh, kind of cheeky but highly lucrative fruit machines that he liked to have in his snooker bar. Mm, they are highly lucrative. <laughs> they, cer- they certainly are. Thankfully for the fruit machine operators these days, both major parties are firmly on board. <laughs> yeah, so uh, indeed. By the, by the 1930s, uh, he kind of, he was on in tough times, uh, like so many other people during the Depression. But uh, somehow in the hubbub of the billiard hall, he'd managed to kind of make connections throughout Sydney and he made some interesting business contacts. And the next thing we know, he's uh, listed as the head contractor for two apartment blocks that are being put up on the Lower North Shore. These apartment blocks end up being part of a, an elaborate fraud, fraudulent scheme. And Jim Smith is just just the front man, more or less, for this. The, uh, they're the 
these apartments, eight blocks, I also am not, I don't know if they still exist. I, they're the Yendara flats in McMahon's Point and the Barangong flats in Kirribilli. I don't think they do, but uh, I've tried, tried my best to, to find out and I can't 100% confirm that. So if anyone can find either of those fl- blocks of flats, I'd be very impressed. <laughs> so there were two uh, wealthy men who we will uh, find out about soon. Uh, who decided that it would be quite a good idea to get a contractor to build these flats and then uh, subcontract out all the work uh, constructing it. And then just when, and kind of hold off on paying all of the all of the uh, tradies who were building these things, building the flats. And then once they kind of finally got it completed, they quickly sell it off, the owners of the building, and then the, sub, the, the contractor, which is Jim Smith in this case, would file for bankruptcy and never pay the... Uh, all the people who'd actually built it. Mm. I believe it worked, uh, more or less. But that that's how uh, Jim Smith got in cahoots with uh, two men called Reggie Holmes and Albert Stannett. Less generic names. Less generic names and... Uh, more character. Far more wealthy Lower North Shore types. So uh, Reggie Holmes, uh, his father was a very famous boat builder of kind of luxury speedboats and uh, luxury yachts. And Reggie had inherited the boat building sheds uh, and the family business. And these sheds were at, uh, actually at Blues Point, McMahon's Point. Ah. Yeah. So tying back into our last story. And our water and, theme. And, and our water theme. Uh, and yeah. The sharks were part of the water theme as well. But definitely there's quite a lot going on in the, uh, on the harbor in this story. And Albert Stannard, uh, he'd also inherited the family business. They, he was a close friend of Reggie Holmes on the... North Shore, and his family business was called Stannard Brothers, and it basically was in the business of supplying all of the tugboats, lighters, and launches that were needed to service ships coming into Sydney. Uh, So this was a really big deal, because in the 1930s, basically everything and everybody that entered Sydney had to enter by a ship. That was the way you got here. And the entire stretch from all around the harbour, but from uh, Benelong Point, Circular Quay, the, the Rocks, Walsh Bay, all the way to Darling Harbour, all of that is kind of a very frantic and bustling port. And if you couldn't get a spot docked at a wharf, then you needed a launch or a lighter to kind of bring your goods and passengers into Sydney. Hmm. Mm-hmm. His business, interestingly, uh, was run right from the uh, Man of War steps, which is that kind of... Uh, that little jetty that I've always wondered why it's there. It's a, hi- a historical site and actually dates back to Macquarie, apparently, uh, originally. That's that, that little jetty that's on the east side of uh, Benelong Point, uh, like at the Opera House, just kind of just by the entrance to the Botanical Gardens. Yes, I do know what you're talking about. Yeah, so it's kind of funny to think that there were like bustling businesses right there because it's such a public area now. But yeah, that was, that was where he ran his private business with all of these... Uh, these smaller boats that would run about uh, bringing people people and things into the harbour. So we've got these two North Shore boating type rich kids. Yep. We've got Jim, your inner, inner west working class pool hall, underground gambling facilitating type shady character. Indeed. And uh, we've got a, a, a fraudulent um, apartment building construction scheme. Exactly. Yes. So you're you're following perfectly. Um, it's it's a tale a tale of kind of two sides of the city and and two quite disparate uh, experiences of the depression. Um, 
And Although it would have been easy for them to do their business since the Harbour Bridge opened a couple of years previous. It had, it had just opened. That's very true. Uh, and also, I guess the business was a somewhat easier in that finding, finding desperate uh, men who would, who would engage in fraudulent schemes for you uh, was probably quite, quite easy because there were so many desperate men out there. Anyhow, to return to uh, Stannard's business, uh, it sounds like very good business ferrying things around Sydney Harbour, just like Billy Blue 100 years previously. But we all know where the real money is, and that hasn't changed since Billy Blue's time. Fruit machines. (laughs) Smuggling. Ah, Smuggling. Sorry. (laughs) I don't don't know if they had fruit. I don't think they would have had very many fruit machines back in Billy Blue's time. Fruit machines is definitely also where the money is, but also (laughs) smuggling. Smuggling, yeah. Uh, So so definitely Stannard's business uh, of greeting all the boats as they arrive uh, puts you in an incredible position for smuggling because you're the first person to reach all of the boats. Um, And all kinds of goods would be coming into Sydney at this time. Illicit goods include like cocaine from South America, opium from China, also things like tobacco, silk, perfume, anything that you could avoid high uh, custom fees on or get into the country that was otherwise uh, not legally tradable uh, would be quite easy to smuggle in if you had all of these fast motorboats around. But the thing that would definitely interest you, Jed, is that although it's quite hard to assess, it has been claimed that throughout the 20s and 30s, Australia's per capita consumption of cocaine was one of the highest in the world. There you go. Yeah. Uh, generally, smuggling Wonder cocaine... Why. Well, we'll we might, maybe this will help to clear, clarify, okay. but I don't know exactly. Uh, so generally, smuggling cocaine at this time uh, was kind of just considered a matter for the customs office to try to control. Uh, there was no different from any other form of smuggling in that way. Um, and the good news is that the uh, collector of customs readily admitted in a newspaper interview in 1935 that they didn't possess a single motorboat capable of going in safety as far as Newcastle. So they didn't possess particularly good equipment for stopping anyone. And mm. shipments could be basically dropped off outside the heads uh, at agreed upon locations at agreed upon times and then picked up by fast motorboat launches. And you could more or less get anything into, into the city that way, it seemed. And the other reason that so the reason that perhaps uh, cocaine was kind of cocaine use was so widespread uh, in Sydney at this time was that it was only in 1927 that chemists had been prohibited from selling cocaine over the counter. So it's again okay. one of the, we talked about this last episode. Yeah, yeah. When something's only so recently been incredibly available, people probably still have habits that mean that they expect to continue um, in roughly the same vein. Yeah, and there's probably, I mean, I imagine the enforcement was pretty lax because it's hard to go from thinking it's super important to control people's use of something when last week they could use it freely (laughs) through illegal means. Yeah, that definitely is true. So although in 1927 chemists were prohibited from selling over the counter, it took until 1934 before police were given primary responsibility for controlling drug trafficking at all. Uh, and so uh, before that point, it was still just a, a matter for the pharmacist board. So it, it wasn't kind of an issue that was particularly on the police radar. And uh, even then when it That's did... That's a great metaphor. <laughs> Please continue, sorry. And then even when it did become kind of generally under the jurisdiction of the police, uh, the Drug Bureau, which had just been created in 1933-34, only had two detectives within it, and they generally targeted Chinese men for possessing opium and only made four arrests in total for the possession of cocaine in the three years from 1933 to 1935. Right. 
So more or less they were targeting uh, a group of uh, foreigners and cocaine use was kind of just allowed to continue. Um, so you've got a brand new and presumably incredibly lucrative black market that's opened up because it's not illegally allowed to be sold and effectively it's just not policed. Right, and how does this tie into our uh, anti-heroes? Well, the next thing that we need to know is that... That this low and offshore boys love cocaine and boats. <laughs> Well, there's very strong suspicion that at least Reggie Holmes was uh, was a very heavy user of cocaine. He did, and they both loved very fast boats. And there is now uh, evidence that's been turned up from the police archives that uh, Jim Smith, our, our boy, he um, actually at one point turned police informant and uh, took a policeman out on the uh, harbor in a boat to tell him that he had all kinds of information about uh, smuggling of opium, cocaine, tobacco, silk, different things like that. And also I mentioned that he was incredibly concerned that there were plans to murder a rival boat builder on the North Shore. And he even gave a name of a boat builder who the police checked out and turned out there was a man of that name. But then when the police asked him to come back and tell him that once once he knew more, and he, uh, he never came back to tell them any further, further information that we know of in the police archive. So we have a man who's mixed up with, some, with a fairly serious uh, racketing crowd and has uh, turned informant to the police, at least on this one occasion, which at this point in history, and I guess always in history, but definitely apparently at this point in history, is not looked upon kindly by those involved in the illicit trade. Sounds like a recipe to get your arm ripped off. Yeah. There's more, though, with uh, Jim's uh, relations to Reggie Holmes uh, and Albert Stannard. Uh, the next the next scheme, they seem to like involving him in, in their fraud schemes. And so the next scheme that they have is to buy a luxury yacht, apparently just a very, very uh, stunning and jaw-dropping, eye-catching boat called the, the Pathfinder. And they uh, managed to convince a wealthy, I think the CEO of Woolworths from, from Brisbane or something like that. A wealthy man from Brisbane comes down to Sydney and they managed to convince him to sell it to them for £3,500. Uh, this is uh, Holmes and Stannard who have the cash to make these kind of transactions. But they managed to kind of do as you do, put it diff- under different names. Kind of, They have a golf partner who they claim is, is actually a wealthy patron who they then put it under his name that he's bought the boat. And then they conduct a couple of transactions to get it further away from their name but more or less they're running the whole show behind uh behind the scenes and then after buying it for three thousand five hundred pounds once they've distanced it from their name enough they uh ask a a marine surveyor from an insurance company to come to holmes's boatyard since he is himself a a boat builder to inspect this fine yacht that has been purchased and he manages to convince this surveyor that the boat is stunning, that if he were to try to build it himself, he could never build it for less than 10,000 pounds. And the surveyor therefore signs off on a piece of paper saying that the boat is worth 8,500 pounds, which they insure it for. Mm-hmm. So you might have noticed that something's changed at this point. That boat was bought for 3,500 pounds, but now it's insured for 8,500 that's a good deal. And so all all they need to do... <laughs> something unfortunate happens to it, they can get two and a half new boats. Is make sure that something unfortunate happens to it. Because that would be the best case scenario, would it not? I think they're just being, you know, prepared for the worst. Well, the worst is definitely to come because they've given Jim Smith the job of making sure that it definitely sinks. 
So this isn't their first time sinking boats for insurance money. And the first time they tried it with a much smaller boat, uh, lower stakes, the uh, the couple of uh, men that they got gave the job of being on board when when it blew up uh, ended up uh, severely injured because the a boat the the engine itself was what they they got to blow up and the boat caught fire and they were, the two men on board were severely burned and they, while they did manage to swim to shore to safety they were pretty grievously injured and so Jim Smith let these two wealthy patrons know in no uncertain terms that he was not planning on blowing up the boat to uh, make it sink he had a far far more cunning and a subtle way of sinking the boat that would make sure that he wasn't personally injured. Um, His new plan involved breaking the water intake pipes to the toilet, which he thought would then definitely make sure that the water would just kind of flow in quite quickly and there would be a kind of dignified, quick, safe, inconspicuous sinking of this this boat and he would just kind of jump leisurely onto the lifeboat, row his way into shore, and this would all take place just, they they keep the boat in, in uh, Broken Bay. He'd sail it out just outside Terrigal, and then he'd uh, row his boat into Terrigal, where there was a convenient police station to report the sinking, and a nice a, a nice place to pull pull his rowboat in as he arrived. Mm, certainly. Before leaving Broken Bay, he's sitting in this luxury yacht, and uh, he thinks, you know, I may as well make the most of this before I sink it. It's quite a nice yacht. And so he invites his friend, uh, Paddy Brady, who will be the last character in the story that we need to remember, uh, <laughs> on board the luxury boat. And Paddy Brady is well known in the underworld as a master forger. And uh, he's many times, he's, he's, he's very good at forging, but he just can't resist uh, forging checks that are a little too audacious to slip under the radar. And he ends up getting caught quite often and he's in and out of jail. Jim and uh, Paddy, they uh, have a couple of drinks, presumably enjoy a little, a little good time on a, on a very fine boat. And then our mate Jim sets off a week later on his own to, to scuttle the ship. And in the dead of the night, he sla- smashes the pipes, uh, but he must have been a little concerned to see that uh, the water wasn't coming in particularly fast from these pipes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's already su- after sunrise at about 6 a.m. He finally kind of climbs aboard deck to check out and, and the boat's finally kind of low enough in the water that he thinks, yeah, it's, it's, it's about to sink. It's probably going to sink pretty soon. So he's about to kind of jump onto his rowboat and, and row into Terrigal. Um, and he must have been absolutely mortified to see a collier carrying coal from Catherine Hill Bay, just south of Newcastle, to power stations in Balmain, had spotted his low-lying yacht and uh, detoured to check if they could help out its unfortunate skipper uh, if he needed a hand. And apparently, at this point, just, I mean, it must have just been awful for him, knowing that his plan had not gone particularly well he uh, he studiously just ignored the uh, the <laughs> office of help and just pretending he couldn't hear them just rode on <laughs> towards terrical embarrassed silence i mean what else can you do really yeah at that point i don't know so um needless to say this is complete cock up they still put forward the insurance claim which i think is kind of Pretty, pretty ballsy. It's pretty impressive that they even try. But uh, quite quickly, some investigators are put onto the case. Uh, the, the insurance company asks for some investigation into it. And uh, quite quickly, Standard and Holmes decide, oh, you know, we'll, we'll retract this. We don't want to make, make the insurance claim anymore. We'll just kind of cut our losses and, and just take it as a dead loss. And I guess as the wealthy often find, they were lucky enough that the detectives just mysteriously decided that they at this point would just no, look no further into the case since the uh, insurance claim had been dropped and nothing more came of it. Except for uh, Jim Smith. Yeah, except for the fact that Jim Smith and now his good mate, uh, Paddy, who's an expert forger, 
know quite a lot about the uh, the dodgy business dealings of two very wealthy and influential men on the lower North Shore. They had this expected windfall from when the uh, the ship would sink and they were going to get kind of a small cut of the profits from the insurance fraud. And suddenly they didn't have that money. And so I presumably they'd maybe taken out a few loans on it or kind of lived live a little bit uh, outside of their means. And they, they kind of needed needed some money after the it all went awry. And so Jim and his mate Paddy started getting into a bit of blackmail with uh, Stannard and Holmes. Since they could reveal all kinds of things about their sh- uh, shady business dealings, they particularly liked to ask for um, signatures and bank details of uh, wealthy customers of the two men so that Paddy could then kind of forge a few checks and they could make good on a little bit of the money. Um, so we don't really fully know what happened after this. But at this point, we have we have two working class men blackmailing incredibly powerful uh, business owners. We have one of them being a known police informer, but it's not clear how widely known that was within the society that he was a police informer. And we also have some pretty large scale uh, criminal undertakings that all four men are tied up together in. And this was the environment in which the arm came out from the shark's mouth. Indeed. And this is where we, uh, we really get into the, the whodunit of uh, what exactly happened. Because Paddy the Forger, the, the friend, he decides that he'd like to lay low for a little while after a couple of forging cases go a bit awry. And he rents out a small fishing uh, cottage, basically at Cronulla on uh, Gunamata Bay. So the kind of inside bay just on the, on the uh, what, what's the name of that? Port Hacking. Um, on the, yeah, Port Hacking side of, of the water, not on the beach side, right? In what is now kind of the bustling Cronulla area. At this time, quite a sleepy fishing village with, with, with a, you know, a pub and some people living down there, but it was a little bit more disconnected from the rest of Sydney. And I believe you would know more about this. I don't think the, the train line wasn't running there at that point in time. In the 30s? Yeah. I would say so. Huh. Maybe we'll have to look that up. I would say it would have opened in the 30s. Well, if it was... But that's a I guess. <laughs> my, re- my main reason for thinking that it wasn't is because I definitely know that uh, part of the reason why we know so much about all of the movements of particularly uh, pa- Jim's mate Paddy in the days before and after Jim's disappearance and the appearance of his arm in the shark uh, is because he caught taxis everywhere, um, and especially down to Cronulla. And I believe partly that was because it was the easiest way to get there, and especially since... Unlike Holmes and Stannard, who had their own automobiles, uh, a man like Paddy couldn't afford one at this point in time. But um, he could afford so taxis from Cremorne to Cronulla. Uh, apparently. I don't know. Maybe the taxis weren't as expensive as they are today. Uh, but also, that there's other interesting things about catching taxis at this time. Because apparently, like, I'm always blown away by the, the accounts of what happened on his taxi journeys. Because he would frequently stop at nice looking pubs along the way and then bring the taxi driver in for a drink they'd kind of sit back knock back a few beers and then continue along on their merry way but it seems like it was more of a couple of chums out on a lark rather than that man being driven with an app in his hand from one place to another as quickly as possible (laughs) yeah well it was a different time (laughs) it certainly was uh, but the last uh, that he's ever seen of Jim Smith alive is when he goes down to visit Paddy uh, in Cronulla. He uh, has quite a nice afternoon, though no later than 6 p.m. He and Paddy decide that they've had enough beers or they certainly aren't allowed to drink anymore. And they'll head back to Paddy's uh, fishing shack on Gunnamatta Bay and they head off and they're never seen again. 
So from here, really, our uh, our information on what happened is murky, and really the the most damning, but also most kind of confusing evidence is uh, all of all of the taxi rides that are that Patty is taking. So the the morning after the Jim Smith disappears, uh, Patty is apparently looking completely disheveled, like he hasn't slept at all. He's uh looks completely terrified apparently according to the, the taxi driver who took him uh, back into sydney he's constantly looking over his shoulder and completely out of sorts and he asked to be driven to to reg holmes uh, place on the lower north shore where he then engages in discussions with reggie holmes we don't know what happened and then in the next preceding days moves back and forth between the Cronulla, expensive taxi rides, and Reggie Holmes' place, and in fact gets an apartment just across the road from Reggie Holmes' place so he can kind of continue his dealings with the man and seems to be completely panicking. The other thing that he does while on his taxi rides, I was saying he could stop and he seemed to like stopping and kind of having a couple of beers with the taxi drivers. He also stopped, asked the taxi driver to stop, and it must have been quite a big taxi, at a, at a couple of shops where in the first one he buys an enormous rug and in the second one he buys a large wooden trunk which would be just about <laughs> the size that you could put a dead body in and the uh, the rug would be quite good for wrapping up a dead yeah, body. yeah the old imagine. rug wrap drop <laughs> can i say that i've uh, i have done some ancillary research while you've been speaking yes. into the uh, opening of the cronulla branch line and i can confirm that we are both in fact right it did open in the 30s, but it wasn't open in 1935. It opened on the 16th of December, 1939. Oh, wow. There you go. Well, it's mm-hmm. perfect for the story. So at this point, it's not such an easy place to get to. The train we'll forgive him his extravagant yet. cab rides. <laughs> and apparently the only way is extravagant cab rides. Um, as a fairly irrelevant aside... Um, it turns out that there was a tram running from Sutherland to Cronulla down the Kingsway until 1932 when oh it closed. Oh, my gosh. Because oh, of this the is a great piece of history. Yeah. So, really, he was just in this, like, dark period where you couldn't get there any other way. Yeah, well, there was buses, but, okay. but you know, buses are running traffic, not especially reliable. Uh, and, you know, for a man of, of some means, which he obviously was, uh, yeah. you know, you don't... One doesn't really catch the bus. Uh, so, yeah, um, but it was because the, the tram line closed that the government could start considering the railway. So it was sort of a good thing in the end. But, yeah, he lived in the, in this seven-year window where uh, the only seven-year window uh, between 1911 and today that there wasn't a uh, some sort of rail-based transport to Cronulla. Well, there you go. We've uncovered a fascinating tidbit about Cronulla been, transportation history. He would never have... Uh, Come undone because of the cab driver. Yeah, I don't know how he would have got the large rug and the wooden chest uh, on the bu- on the train, but maybe he could have managed it. <laughs> it might have been even more conspicuous now that I yeah. give it a tiny bit more thought. <laughs> yeah, what he needed was a large moving truck. But what you might be surprised to hear is that despite all evidence seeming to push point, like really at Paddy being the murderer here, a lot of people think that it probably wasn't him. Uh, the, there's very little, uh, reason to think he would have a motive for killing Jim Smith. Like they seem to genuinely have been friends and they were also in cahoots in blackmailing these uh, wealthier men. So it's not clear why he would have wanted to kill, uh, Jim Smith. And then 
The other thing is there were some very suspicious cars lurking around on the night that uh, Jim Smith disappeared that are kind of commented on by neighbors and things like that. So there's, there is a way of concocting the story where it seems like what might have happened, men broke into this fishing shack, dragged Jim Smith away, also intended in this act of killing Jim to, to really terrify Patty and make sure that he never said anything about it. Mm. Killed Jim, possibly as gruesome as it sounds, as it is cut off his arm and left it at Patty's little shack as a kind of like warning sign and also to leave him in the compromising position of needing to dispose somehow of this arm. And then possibly took the body away and buried it somewhere in the Sutherland Shire where it's never been found since. Right, so they don't think the whole body was just tossed out to sea. At least there are some people who suspect that might have not have been what happened. Obviously, it's also possible that the body was all chucked into uh, the chest and then that was chucked into the ocean and somehow the an arm kind of floated out. It, anything really is, is possible because the very impressive thing about this case is despite the fact that just about the most uh, headline-grabbing, conspicuous, obvious sign of murder that you could ever imagine, which is an arm being vomited out in a public aquarium by a shark, is how the story starts. The story ends in complete silence. Paddy is uh, taken to court uh, and charged with murder, but he is uh, released. Uh, He's found not guilty. And to his uh, death, he maintains that he had nothing to do with it, but he refuses to say anything further about the details of what happened to Jim Smith. During the court case where Paddy is on trial, obviously there is significant testimony from uh, taxi drivers that he continues to go back and forth to uh, Reggie Holmes's house after the presumed death of uh, Jim Smith. And that puts a lot of pressure on this uh, wealthy, well-to-do man who has kind of seen his world completely unravel at this point uh, all of those illicit dealings that he managed to keep his face and name away from are kind of coming out into the light and he actually ends up uh, trying to commit suicide on a speedboat on Sydney Harbour but he fails however when he puts a pistol to his head because he puts it to the wrong part of his head and then ends up on a high speed boat chase for many hours around Sydney Harbour with the police chasing him but as we found out earlier in the episode They don't have particularly fast speedboats compared to what these wealthy men have. He eventually is kind of reeled in, but... Sorry, did he shoot himself in the head? He shot himself in the head and did not kill himself. And then led the police on a high-speed boat chase. He did, which is quite impressive. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Apparently... What a spectacle that would have been to watch. Yeah, and apparently it was right outside Point Piper where he tried to commit suicide. So there was a complete view of a very wealthy, well-to-do part of Sydney... There's an attempted suicide and then a huge boat chase for multiple hours on Sydney Harbour. I imagine that that was also in the tabloids. Yeah. Uh, And the story kind of gets even more kind of gruesome and headline grabbing because I think it's the very next day or at least only a couple of days later, someone must have decided that Reggie was really starting to lose it and was a liability since he obviously knew a lot about the uh, underworld dealings of a a lot of different uh, people involved. And he was found shot dead and it was not believed to be suicide in this case, under some, almost underneath the uh, the, hub, the newly built Harbour Bridge, uh, kind of in the Walsh Bay area, uh, which is a very much a working port at that time. So we've got now two of our four uh, main characters are dead, and one of them's on trial for murder, and actually Stannard also ends up uh, on trial for the murder of Reggie Holmes. 
Uh, so all of them are either dead or on trial for murder. And fascinatingly, as I said, that everything ends up in silence. Stannard, I think, is on his second trial. The first one ends in a hung jury found not guilty as well. There's a lot of imposing looking uh, henchmen standing outside the courtroom uh, on both occasions uh, when everyone arrived. And apparently the number of witnesses seem to disappear as the case goes on. And very few people are willing to say anything about what they saw that night. And Stannard is also found not guilty. And the really fascinating thing about this, this is happening at the Darlinghurst uh, courthouse that we discussed uh, in season one a little bit. After the not guilty charge uh, is read out, there is apparently mass celebrations of the raucous crowd who were in there watching, which included lots of uh, working class kind of dock workers. And they flooded into Taylor Square and apparently the party lasted for many hours. And no one, I mean, no one was ever able to fully explain why there was such jubilation and relief at the not guilty charge here but it seems like again the suspicion is that what had happened is that that has come quite close to a fairly large ring of a smuggling being blown apart and a kind of underworld dealings brought out into the open and by managing to get through these cases with not guilty verdicts favor managed to keep everything under wraps standard also goes to his deathbed i think in the 70s or quite a long time later and i think he's moved to the usa at this point never once revealing anything about what happened with the shark arm mystery and it remains a mystery to this day what exactly happened to our friend jim smith and how his arm ended up in the shark well there you go what a fascinating tale. I mean, I feel like we do know what happened to him. Maybe not all of the exact specifics, but all the most important information is known. Yeah. Yeah. We just don't know who it was that actually killed him and precisely why and how. His engagement with uh, criminal types is what killed him, Alistair. Yeah. Don't. It's a lesson for us all, isn't it? Mm, definitely. So that, Jed, wraps up my story of the shark arm. It's a story, actually, one of the few that I was aware of before we even started this podcast, possibly because it's a more local story to me, but it's definitely one that's a good piece of Sydney folklore, the, the shark arm. Yeah, it's a great story. I particularly enjoyed the, uh, uh, the finding out about the bizarre pool at Coogee Beach because when you started talking about it, I was like, oh yeah, it's a, it's a rock bars. Yeah. And then you're like, no, it's like a hundred meters from the water. <laughs> also the style of the palace or whatever that pub's called. Yeah. You know, he's in such a sort of turn of the century style. I, I need a bigger architecture vernacular. Um, but I can only imagine that the pool was built to a similar aesthetic. And yeah, just the, the visual of a shark cruising around in there, um, throwing up a tattooed arm is, uh, yeah, quite a way to start a story. It's quite something. Yeah. And we I, there's also, uh, I have some images of that very swimming pool uh, in that area. And I've also, you'd be interested to hear, talk to at least one man who who remembers swimming in that pool when he was young. Ah, cool. Yeah, you'll see in the photo that there's quite like steep terraces around it, it's surrounded by by the building, even though it is open air. It's kind of like in an inside uh, courtyard. And apparently it was freezing cold and he hated it as a kind of school kid having to go and swim there because you were always in the shade no matter what time of day it was right. and the water was freezing. <laughs> So hence it didn't last. Perhaps it's good that it's not there anymore. Yeah. And I must also say the uh the Catherine Hill Bay coal ship uh spoil spoiling the attempted insurance fraud uh off the coast of Terrigal is another lovely moment for the story. And I was curious was the boat salvaged? 
I don't believe so. It's, so it did uh, no, sink. I think it did sink, but but it was just like it was, under it was clearly obvious. suspicious circumstances. Yeah, and that the guy, that the man, the the captain aboard was not really interested in trying to save it. Yeah, he probably he probably should have gone for the rescue attempt. Yeah. <laughs> oh well, live and learn. You do, and um. Actually, I didn't know about Catherine Hill Bay at all until researching this episode. But how about that amazing pier just jutting out into the middle of the ocean? Yeah, and it's it's. I mean, there's not that many like that left in Australia. Although, yeah, it seems that there was a period in time when there was a lot for various different reasons. But yeah, that one, that one's just sitting right there. Well, that right was there. an industrial jetty, I believe, right? That was for coal to be transported out and put loaded onto ships. Yeah. Yeah, so very different, I guess, from the pleasure pier in Coogee. But yeah, huge. And I, you can kind of even see that it presumably had a railroad, of a small industrial railroad of sorts on it. It looks like there's kind of track tracks for coal, whatever you would call them, little uh, containers of coal to be taken out to the boats. Yeah, it's been a long time, but uh, yeah, lovely spot. Yeah, yeah. Well, back then in the in this store in 1935, it was still a functioning small coal mining uh, area. Well, Jed, I'm really glad that you enjoyed the story, and I believe that at this point, I can look forward to a clue about what to expect a fortnight from now when you're up for a good old story from Sydney. You can, and I'm not sure if I should give any preamble to this clue or just launch right into it. Look, I think I'm just going to launch right into it. Yeah. So next episode, I'm going to tell not one, but three stories. Uh, They all take place in a different time, but all in the same place. One is a story of a hidden vault locked away for thousands of years. Another is of a famous fight that was, as of yet, never to be repeated. And the last is of a failed attempt of man to reach the highest heights and the monuments to that failure that remain. Oh my gosh, that is quite the clue. Uh, wow, you've got me like, like Tutankhamun's tomb, then I've moved to like some kind of <laughs> NASA headquarters and, and the fight I'm back at the first episode with this uh, Jack Johnson fight. I have no idea what this fascinating place Look, could be. I, didn't I like think that you would. <laughs> I like I like that you've got another episode that seems to have an interesting structure with uh, different stories going on. Alrighty then. Well, uh, thanks for listening, everyone. We really hope that you enjoyed this week's episode of Stories from Sydney: History of the Harbour City as much as we enjoyed making it. Uh, if you've got any questions, comments, complaints, or anything of the like, as always, uh, you can get in touch with us through our Facebook page, Stories from Sydney or Instagram, Stories from Sydney, or you could also reach us by email at storiesfromsydney at gmail.com. And if you have a suggestion for a story that you think we'd all enjoy, then please uh, send us an email. Uh, But do indicate in the subject line if it's for myself or Alistair uh, so that the other person doesn't read it, and we can use it as a story. And if you enjoyed this podcast and you were just really trying to figure out a way that you can support us, the best thing that you can do is leave us a rating and a review on whichever platform you listen to podcasts. Otherwise, uh, subscribe, tell your friends about us, and uh, spread the love. See you next time for my story from Sydney. Hurrah!